Beautiful. All right. Let's go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. So we are on question 35. Um, last week we talked about uh, Ezekiel 37 and Jeremiah 31. And I just want to close up a little bit, button up uh, some stuff in the Old Testament. And then we'll look at some, um, some new things this morning. Um, but before we uh, jump into this, let me uh, pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have uh, safely delivered us here on this uh, very soggy and wet morning that you have uh, ordained for us today. We do thank you for this rain, Lord. We pray that you would uh, keep it going as long as possible. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for this uh, time of Sunday school hour where we will uh, dive further into your word and into the, uh, our, our catechisms. Uh, that you have uh, preserved for us, and uh, where we may know you better, where we may uh, call upon your name in praise and glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I want to uh, talk briefly about uh, the visible church of the new covenant. Uh, both testaments talk about the visible church um, in the new covenant, but the question is how? Okay, what do they say? Uh, flip over with me to Jeremiah 32 in your Bibles, please. Jeremiah 32. We're going to start in verse 32. <clears throat> Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 32. The city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And listen carefully, verse 33, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. So that last part, verse 33 Okay, it's important because it helps us understand Jeremiah 31, verse 34, what we looked at last week, specifically that phrase about how they shall no longer teach his neighbor. Okay, as if um, the idea is that one neighbor is urging the other to know the Lord. Okay, here God is saying, I tried to teach them and they didn't listen. The point of Jeremiah 31, 34 is not, as some would argue, that in the Old Covenant, you had a mixed congregation of unbelievers and believers, but in the New Covenant, it's supposed to be all believers. Okay? That's the argument you generally get from most Baptists, okay? or, or an all-believers church, um, as opposed to including believers and their children. Okay? They would say the New Covenant should only include adult professing believers, but we see clearly in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10... Okay, that in the New Covenant, there are still people in the visible church that trample underfoot the Son of God. Okay, they have profaned the blood of the covenant and they turn, back, um, turn their back on the, on the great high priest. This is still a problem. Okay, we, we still do have um, uh, apostates in, in the new church, um, or, or in the church in the New Covenant, rather. Jeremiah 31, 34 uh, is what John Murray called a relative contrast in absolute terms. Uh, what he means is that in the New Covenant, there will be a greater experience of the true saving knowledge and fellowship of God in the visible church. Uh, an experience the believers didn't have in the days of Jeremiah and the Mosaic economy. So, the idea is, is not that in the Old Testament, people didn't know God, and then in, now in the New Testament, they do. Okay? No, it's, it's, um, it's the same in both Testaments. Okay? But in the New Covenant, the knowledge of God will more generally prevail. Okay? Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34 is a more relative contrast, and it's set against the backdrop of those who weren't interested in being taught. Okay? Um, as opposed to those that we read about here in Jeremiah 32, 33. Okay. Now, excellent. Lastly, I want to look quickly at how God administers this covenant. Okay? Look down at verse 40 in chapter 32. <clears throat> I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me 
I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So in verse 40, God says, He will make the covenant and that He will not turn away. So again, we get that reassurance of certainty. This covenant will come to fruition. But notice what God says about His actions toward His people. He says, I will do good to them. And He qualifies it by saying that uh, we will not turn away. Those who are truly of the Lord, who have been given a holy fear of God, will never be lost. According to verse 40, right? you, you cannot turn away from Him. To put it another way, right? you cannot lose your salvation because it is, it is a good thing that comes from the Lord. Right, God says He will rejoice in doing good. Our Lord cares for us gladly, not begrudgingly. And He does so with all His heart and His soul. This is how the new covenant was formed. This is how Jesus went to the cross. And, and with that, let's take a look at the administration of the new covenant. So, the divines are careful to note that this covenant of grace, as we read in our, our answer, was and still is to be administered in these ways. Okay, and what are those ways? Well, it's the preaching of the word and the sacraments. We don't add or subtract from this. Okay, the Old Testament saints had the word of God. They had it read, taught, preached. Okay, and they had circumcision and Passover. This side of the cross, we have the completed canon of scripture. We have it read, taught, and preached. And we have uh, both the sacraments, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let's begin by looking at the first of these, the preaching of the word. Now, there are at least, I think it's like five questions in the larger catechism related to preaching and the word of God. So I don't want to dwell too much on on that kind of aspect of it. We will talk a little bit about it, but kind of keeping in step with our theme of, of covenant theology, what I'd like to do is compare how the word of God was delivered between the old and the new covenants. And what you're going to find is that there's a progressive nature in how God speaks to His people throughout the covenants. See, God has a, a specific end goal in mind, both in the nature and in the delivery of His Word. And as we begin to unpack this, you'll see how beautiful and how redemptive this whole process really is. So let's start in the beginning, shall we? For in the beginning, as we all know, when God uh, completed His creation, everything was very good. It was without sin, right? Therefore, He was able to communicate with Adam and Eve, directly, right? They were able to behold His glory. They could receive His word without any issues. But then sin enters the garden. Adam and Eve hide from the Lord's presence, right? They can no longer bear His majesty and His holiness in light of their sin. We saw a good example of that when we looked uh, in Exodus 20, right? When God speaks to the people at Mount Sinai, when, they speak, when He speaks to a sinner, it is terrifying, Right? There's lightning and trumpets and, and thunder and the mountain shakes. Right? And, the, and the people, what do they say? They look at Moses and they're like, we will do what the Lord says, but please, Moses, we need to speak to you. We can't take this from the Lord anymore. It's too terrifying. And God wasn't even displeased at that point. Right? He was giving the law. That was a, that was a good thing. Here in the garden, though, Adam and Eve have to face that same God naked. Okay, they got some fig leaves on, right? But God is not happy. Imagine having that conversation. So they're kicked out of the garden, and eventually we learn that God's people need a mediator to commune with the Lord and receive His Word. And over our course of studying covenant theology, right, we looked at different mediators. We saw King David. We saw Moses. Right now, with Moses, it's interesting. Stephen says in his speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, he says, He, Moses, received living oracles to give to us. Now, I'm sure most of you are aware, when you read uh, in the New Testament, it mentions the oracles of God. It's talking about the Word of God. It's talking about Scripture. Okay? But what's interesting is that Stephen says Moses was entrusted with the living oracles. Where else have we heard that language in Scripture? Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
So the Old Testament then is still living and active? We still have to read and preach out of the Old Testament then? Yeah, we do. It's still valid today. It's just as powerful to convict a man of his sin and call him to repentance and faith in Christ. That's why I love, for example, when you try to quote Leviticus 20, right? I think it's verse 13, uh, or even Paul in Romans 1, right, regarding how homosexuality is sinful, right? You often get comments like, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, first of all, it's all the Word of God. Amen? But second of all, uh, yes, he did. Okay? He goes back to the living oracles given to Moses in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 19. Right? He goes back to Genesis, written by Moses, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them male and female from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus is saying, yeah, I did say it because Scripture is divinely inspired. I wrote it. Okay? To quote C.S. Lewis, don't cite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. Okay? Favorite line in the whole series. Sorry. So all, all that to say, right, now we have Moses, right, our, our mediator. But there's one more particular mediator I want to focus on, right? We have the Levitical priests. Because at a certain point, the people will have to carry on without Moses, and the, the priests will play an important role um, in comparing the delivery of the Old and the New Covenant preaching. Now, remember, the Levitical priests were a, a holy people. They were set apart to do a very specific work uh, for God. Their holiness characterized both the work itself and the way that the work was executed. Now, the priests had a number of duties and responsibilities, but chief among them revolved around their communion of God's word to the people. Uh, Turn with me, please, to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 10. Beginning in verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die... It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statues that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So again, we see the theme of holiness in these first few verses, right? The priests were to demonstrate holiness in their lives, and I would argue to magnify God's holiness in their their teaching and their preaching as well. Um, It's no coincidence that holiness is in concert here with the preaching and the teaching of God's word. The two go hand in hand. But take notice of verse 11. One of the primary responsibilities uh, for the priests was to teach the people. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, did they have a formal Sunday school hour where they taught, and then they went into worship and they did their preaching? Uh, You know, they had a nice sermon? No, I, I, I doubt it, okay? But there are Sabbath laws in place, okay, where the people were regularly fed a healthy diet of God's word. The priest would teach, or I think it's appropriate to say preach, um, on the Sabbath, as, as Jesus did in the temple. Okay? And throughout everyday life, the priest would use God's word uh, to teach the people and apply various forms of wisdom. What we really need to take away here, though, are, are two things. The priests are now the mediators um, of God's word to teach or preach the word to his people. Their, this responsibility has now gone from one man Moses, to, to many priests as, as, as God's people start to increase. And number two, they are to teach, as verse 11 says, all the statutes of the Lord. Okay, they don't get to pick and choose what they like and don't like. They teach the whole counsel of God. And that's something that I, I think a lot of Christian ministers and even Christians in general fail at today. Right? We only want to hear the stuff we like and then, and then just kind of throw out the rest. Well, when you do that, when you pick and choose, you're not preaching or believing the God of the Bible. And what ends up happening is you create and worship a God of your own making and your own desires. In other words, it's just flagrant idolatry. Okay. One of the other responsibilities of the Levitical priests was to inquire of the Lord. Now, this was specifically reserved for the high priest. Uh, and we see a great example of that in Judges 20. Um, Flip flip there with me, please, if you will. Judges 20. 
starting in verse 27. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So again, God doesn't speak directly to the people, but he will speak to their mediator, right? The, uh, the high priest Phineas at this time asked God if he should attack the tribe of Benjamin. God says, yes, go, I'll be with you. Now, I recognize this, this method of relaying God's word isn't preaching or teaching in, in the formal sense. I get that. But it is nevertheless a responsibility levied upon the priests uh, to administer or relay the word of God to the people in this fashion. Uh, I don't really want us to just kind of narrow our vision down on just preaching per se. Rather, I want our, our goal to be get a, to get a holistic picture uh, of how the word is delivered to the people, okay? how God communicates with his people. And this aspect of inquiring of God or understanding the will of God, right? it's, it's incredibly important as we look at how that transformation comes about between the old and the new covenant. I, I so much want to tell you right now, but I don't want to blow my big ending. Now, one of the last major mediators we saw in the Old Testament were the prophets, right? Most of us know a prophet is someone who expresses the will of God uh, in, the, in word, right? Sometimes in signs. Usually these men would converse with God sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Um, they would show men their sin, something our pastor does quite well in his sermons. Um, and they would beseech Israel to repent, right? Repent from their evil ways and turn from God again, Go to the dictionary, see a, pa- a picture of our pastor, Pastor Miller. I don't want to dwell too much on the prophets. We spent plenty of time looking at them in our um, previous lectures in previous weeks. So, to put a bow on it, right? this is how the delivery of God's word uh, has evolved from Genesis to this end point in, uh, throughout the Old Testament covenants. So Paul tells us in Romans 3 verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles, of God. And these oracles would have been the Old Testament, or what the Jews called the, uh, the Tanakh. Um, hey, you know what? I have a board now. This is dangerous that I have a board. Okay. Ooh, how do you spell that one? I can't remember. Is it? Is it Ket? Ket? Yeah, there you go. That's what I thought. I just couldn't remember. Is it Ket? See, I, st- I looked at it. I still can't remember. So what happens if you try to transliterate Hebrew on the fly? Okay. So they uh, have what they call the Tanakh, right? Sometimes you'll see it spelled with an H at the end. Um, that stands for the, uh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And through the Jews, God has preserved His Word well throughout the ages. Uh, but then a little over 2,000 years ago, something pretty major happens, Right? Both the delivery method and the nature of the Word of God takes a major detour, if you will. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is born and we have the written Word and the living Word coexisting simultaneously and harmoniously. So now the divine mediator is here and he's bringing the Word of God together in a whole new way. Because he clarifies and expands or next man's explains the Old Testament text, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you. He preaches with divine authority, right? He finishes teaching on building your house on 
the rock and not the sand at the end of Matthew 7, and the crowds say he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He's ushering the new covenant into fruition and transforming everything, specifically for our context, the Word of God, right? He's the living embodiment of our Old and New Testament scriptures. He's the epitome of priestly teaching and preaching. In Christ, we see how the Word of God has progressed and reached its zenith. With the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we receive the perfect mediator, the perfect preacher, the perfect and closed canon of Scripture. In the New Covenant, the oracles of God are now complete because, according to Hebrews 1-2, in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. God has preserved His Word for us in the written Word of the Bible. The apostles and disciples have transcribed for us the life of Christ and the teachings of the Lord that we may have faith and be sanctified. What a long way we have come from a frightened Adam and Eve in the garden. We have the living God speaking to us through His Son and transcribed for us in a word and preserved in a way that we can understand it and read it in our Bibles. That is marvelous. And despite, despite this wonderful act of God, you get those people. Yeah, but I don't like to read. I like to watch movies. Can I, can I just watch the Bible movies on like Netflix or something? Right? Okay. First of all, those are garbage. Okay? Second of all, images of Jesus, yes, even the one on film, are a violation of the second commandment. That's right. I said it. Okay? Third, you don't like to read too bad. <gasps> How dare you? Look, I'm not surprised most people don't like to read. Okay? It takes work to read. It's a skill and a discipline that you have to develop. Reading doesn't just passively entertain you like most things in our world. So if you don't like to read, learn to read. Learn to love to read. And if it's really that hard, start with audio Bible. Have somebody read to you on your headphones. Okay? The point is get immersed in the Word. Imagine, imagine loving someone. And they write you love letters. They write you a whole book and you don't read it. Why? Why? I I don't like to read. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox about reading your Bibles. This is about preaching. How we hear and receive God's Word doesn't end here, though. In this life, for us, though, does it? In our glorification, we are restored to a garden-like state where we may dwell and converse with God in His full glory and without fear. With the inauguration of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, this was the plan from the very beginning. What Adam destroyed, God has restored, both in its delivery and in its nature. We read in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In paradise, we will no longer need to hear God's word preached from the pulpit. It will be delivered straight from the mouth of the Lord. We will dwell with him as his people as we were always meant to. With Christ's work and in his second coming, the nature of the word has changed from a printed text to the the sweet, audible words of God himself. With Christ's work, we are in paradise, and the words we hear will not cause us to tremble or cower in fear, but rather we will rejoice in worship. In our glorification, the delivery of the word has come full circle through the redemptive work of Christ. And here in the New Covenant, we live in a glorious time where the Word of God is taught and preached to His saints. And we rejoice in this time. 
until we reach that day in glory where sin is no longer and we are fed from fed the word from the very mouth of the Lord. What I'd like us to do now is look at just a kind of a quick excursus, a quick rundown of biblical new covenant preaching. <clears throat> okay. What is preaching? As I said before, the catechism spends ample time discussing this topic, so I don't hopefully want to spend a ton of time here. Um, but as we're going through this, I kind of, I kind of want um, to do at least two things, or kind of have two things go through your mind. I want to present a framework for the content of good preaching. Okay? Now, everyone and their mother has their own idea of what a good sermon looks like. Okay? My goal is not to teach you how to preach. Because let me tell you, preaching is hard. Writing a sermon is hard. It takes a lot of work. Rather, as I said, my goal is to help you understand what biblical New Covenant preaching is and what it looks like. Okay? And secondly, and this is, I guess, just kind of a byproduct, <clears throat> is to grow your confidence in your own minister. Okay? We have good preaching here at Heritage. We do. Uh, as I'm going through this, and, and this is somebody who's been trained to preach, this is somebody who has heard and seen a lot of preachers, okay? Um, I'm telling you, we have good preaching here at Heritage. As I'm going through this, I want you to be thinking, yeah, that's my preacher. This is a slayer of dragons, okay? Yeah, pa- Pastor Miller does that. What, what other ones are the same? Yeah, okay? Because the flip side of this coin is you'll be able to recognize bad preaching when you see it, okay? Because it is out there, unfortunately. Okay, so I think I have, like, I said I didn't want to take a long time. I think I actually have, like, seven things I want you to know about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> first of all, biblical preaching is covenantal. It's covenantal, okay? Flip with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. <clears throat> all the way to the end. Let's start in verse 44. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So, aside from this being the best Bible study ever, this goes right back to the Tanakh principle, okay, uh, that I was talking about before. The Jewish Bible is broken up into these these three main sections, um, and that's what Jesus is, is getting at here. And by the way, the book of the Psalms, uh, book of Psalms is what the first book of the writing is. So that's why it's written like that, uh, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay? The Jewish Bible is arranged in a different order than our Old Testament, but it's all the same books. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying here, it's all about me. It's all fulfilled in me. And for a minister to faithfully preach God's word under this pretext, it must be covenantal in nature. Covenantal theology, or covenant theology rather, truly is the best way to understand how the grand parts of Scripture fit together. And it's all of grace, right? It's all pointing to Christ. That's that's the argument that I've been making this whole time. And so in accordance with Christ's work here in Luke 24, we preach the whole counsel of God. Both Old and New Testament, all 66 books of the Bible. According to Christ, the covenant economies of the Old Testament reach their fulfillment in Him, in the new covenant of grace. And so our preaching, good biblical preaching, is indicative of that. Second, biblical preaching is Christological. It's Christological. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he's named, was quite famous for quotes on... uh, Christless sermons. I found two that I really liked. I wanted to share with you. <clears throat> he said, The motto of all true servants of God must be we preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home. 
and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Here's the second quote. Leave Christ out? Oh, my brethren, better leave the pulpit out altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Certainly, the last any Christian ought to go to hear him preach. He has quite a few quotes like this, but you get the point, right? Uh, a sermon divorced of Christ is, is no sermon of all, at all. Okay? And to that, I would say a hearty amen. Uh, in fact, I'll add to it. A sermon who mentions Christ but misapplies the work of Christ or misapplies His name or His commands, what have you, it too is no sermon at all. Okay? Now, uh, Spurgeon kind of stole my proof text there in his quote. Uh, but I'll read it again, nevertheless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ and Him crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul is saying, we preach of a crucified Messiah that has come to save God's people. Right? This is the Jesus of your sermons. Now, does this mean you have to preach the cross and that specific work of Christ in every sermon? No, there are other ways to preach Christ and the gospel. Is, uh, it's a much more exhaustive and, and far-reaching in our lives than just that aspect of it, right? than just what happened at Calvary. Um, okay, third, um, biblical preaching is expository. For a sermon to be expository, it means that it expounds the meaning of the text okay, in, in its biblical context. And the way that is done is through sound exegesis. A minister will, will carefully study a text, okay? things like the author, the original audience, the literary type, the original languages, okay? the context, the history in which it was written, a whole host of other things. A lot of work goes into this. Okay? It requires a lot of prayer, a lot of assistance through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And oftentimes, this means not being afraid to speak hard truths. Okay? When you get to those difficult sections and those passages in Scripture, you don't want a pastor that skips over them or treats them with a, shall we say, limp wrist. <laughs> okay? No, you want a Pastor Miller who is not afraid to faithfully exegete the text, to, to, to preach it boldly, okay? to poke the world in the eye, okay? and equip you to do the hard things that you need to do. Okay? Because that's the other thing that preaching does, okay? It's, it's expository preaching requires that the meaning of the text be legitimately applied to a contemporary hearer, okay? And that's the fourth item that I want to talk about, that, that preaching is applicatory, okay? Preaching is not teaching. They're two different animals, okay? For example, I could get up here and teach you all about church history, okay? I could, I could impart to you many wonderful facts, uh, we, could, we could maybe read a few passages of Scripture, okay? But there may very well be no application. Teaching is more in the business of furnishing information. If I do that in a sermon, I have failed you, okay? Rather, a good sermon, on the other hand, will apply the Word of God to His people, okay? It is dominated by a message, and it's intended to produce action as well as important instruction. You know, for... For centuries, right, the Roman Catholic Church, they held their entire Mass to include their homilies, right, which is what they call their sermon, in Latin. Well, what good did that do the people? They couldn't hear or be transformed or changed by the Word of God. Martin Luther, right, against the vehement admonition of the Catholic Church, eventually translated the New Testament into German. What a chad. If the word of God is not in the vulgar tongue of the people, it's of no consequence. Okay? In other words, it cannot be applied. This aspect of preaching is so important because it helps you understand the will of God. Right? Now, think back to our Judges 20 passage. The people couldn't discern the will of God without a mediator. Right? That's changed now. Now you can discern the will of God. When the word is rightly applied to you in a sermon, God's will is made clear. Sometimes the text is plain and it's obvious, right? Sometimes it's delivered through good and necessary consequence. 
But even more than that, with Christ as, as our mediator, right? The one who always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25, you can do what the Old Testament saints couldn't. You can pray directly to God. You can read God's word for yourself in your own language. You can discuss your thoughts and your conclusions with other people, with your elders, right? Who are there to help you and walk alongside you and, and, and help you with difficult decisions. The delivery of God's word has changed for the better. It is not like the time of the Levitical priests. Because even the scriptures under the administration of the new covenant are better. Because it's a better covenant. Five. Biblical preaching has divine authority through ministerial delivery. Okay, what do I mean by that? In true biblical preaching, when a man has been rightly ordained and installed to the office of teaching elder, a minister, a pastor, okay, and when that man gets behind the pulpit to preach, it is in effect, to an extent, not that man speaking. That is God speaking to his people, using the minister as his mouthpiece or an ambassador, if you will, whatever you want to call it. Okay? Now, this does not mean he is providing some kind of extra biblical revelation in any way. Okay? Simply that he is fully exegeting the oracles of God and applying them to God's people. Okay, listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, which you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So Paul says that the people heard the word of God. Right? They didn't read it. They didn't watch a YouTube video. Right? They heard it preached. What Paul brought the Thessalonians wasn't a Tony Robbins self-help seminar. Right? Although, unfortunately, that's probably most of your sermons today. Right? Three steps to a better life. Something like that. <clears throat> no, Paul brought them the gospel. The, the, this is the preach word that they heard and believed. Okay? And he says that they accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, just as kind of a side note, this, this is kind of interesting. Because that phrase, this would mean that Paul knew he was writing Scripture. And preaching Scripture. Paul says, what I wrote to you, what I brought to you, what I preached to you, it's not coming from me, from man. It's coming from God. So Paul knew he was writing Scripture. It's pretty heavy. Anyway, at any rate... When the word of God is faithfully preached, God's elect will hear it and they will respond. They will receive it. Okay, so when Pastor Miller is up there preaching, right, it is God speaking through him. Jesus gave us pastors in Ephesians 4.12. He says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, pastors are those who have been approved, quote, and attested by God. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 to deliver his word. Not their own. Okay, again, this is not to say pastors are infallible or, or have some kind of special revelation outside of Scripture. Okay, but when a pastor, a man who has labored and prayed over a text, prepares a sermon, you should receive it and accept it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Okay, listen to the, the second Helvetic Confession. I like what it says here, it's, uh, which cites 1 Thessalonians 2.13 as their proof text for this. <clears throat> It says, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. Excellent. A nice summary. Because preaching is the primary way that God saves his people. And that's our, our next point. Um, we read in Romans 10, 13 and 14, right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved... How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is why, by the way, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying that they preached, even in the Old Testament, right? It's not as if preaching was some kind of new thing that they started in the New Testament, right? They, they, clearly, they've been doing this for a while. Anyway, 
clearly Paul has a robust theology of preaching, which means that we should too. So Paul lays out this series of rhetorical questions to consider the chain of events that's necessary for a person to be saved. And, and the logic is very clear here, right? Number one, people call on Jesus to save them only if they believe that he can do so. Number two, belief in Christ cannot exist without knowledge about him. And then number three, one hears about Christ only when someone faithfully preaches a message of repentance and faith. So the answer is simple. Send pastors to preach biblical sermons that people can hear and be saved. Right? This is why, by the way, it's very important that we invite unbelieving friends, families, neighbors, all those people to church so that they can hear the preached word. Number seven, this is the last one. Biblical preaching is the mark of a true church. Faithful preach, uh, faithfully preaching the gospel is one of the things that makes us and, and other churches um, a true church of Christ. And unfortunately, so many ministers are capitulating in this area. They're, they're scared of their, congrega- their congregations um, and the backlash of a, just a, a woke liberal world. So they, they preach what people want to hear. Um, rather than preaching the whole counsel of God. And in case you were wondering, the other signs of a true church are discipline and the administration of the sacraments, which leads us nicely into our next section, administration of the sacraments. But I think we will end a little, we will end a little early today because I don't want to start baptism right now. That's a, that's a whole nother animal. <laughs> And a whole nother beast. So I think we'll end early. Does anyone have any uh, questions about anything we went over today? Sir? What are your, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, uh, I guess you call them like topical sermons, sermon series. Yeah, so topical sermons are fine. Um, you can preach topical sermons as long as they're done in an expository, exegetical manner, right? Um, there's times for that. Um, you know, I've seen pastors go through, for example, pastors will preach through... Um, the uh, the confession, and they'll use the confession as a as a somewhat topical way to preach through. You know, if they want to do justification and do a topical series through justification and use the confession that way, that's totally fine. Um, or if you want to, um, instead of doing uh, lectio continua, which is preaching through the whole book, right? Um, you know, pastor, our pastor, right? He might take a, a short break uh, and uh, for if we have a baptism, and he'll preach a special sermon on a baptism, or um, on Christmas, he might. Preach a, preach a special sermon during Christmas or something like that. So it's perfectly acceptable to do that um, as long as it's done in a biblical manner. Great question. Sir? Um, you have to say this in reverse. The gospel is preached throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. If if the if Scripture is the one doing the offending, then that is that's okay. The, the Word of God is meant to stir men's souls and convict them of their sin. That's that's what it's there to do. Um, and the gospel is very far-reaching. It's in every aspect of our lives, right? Uh, not just church and home. It, it, it's it's much broader than that. So yeah, I'd, I'd say a hearty amen to that. Great question. Yes, ma'am. You, you said earlier that it's heretical to um, represent Christ like on film. So is it wrong to watch movies like Passion of Christ? Yes, I would say that it's uh, wrong to watch those kinds of movies. Um, because the second commandment, and we'll, well, that's a great question, and we'll go over this in a lot more detail when we, when we get to the commandments and the confession. But the second commandment specifically says not to make the image of God. And then the second part is not to worship it. So um, when we talk about making the image, that's, that's very far-reaching, right? Not, to, uh, not even to adorn ourselves with um, clothing that would try to represent Christ in any way. So that would be pictures, film, um, physical images, right? So we talk about like crucifixes or things like that. Um, so yeah, I would make the argument that, um, that that would include that as well. Great question. Right, right. Yeah, bud, what you got? 
Well, Jesus is God, right? So I would, so I would say that you want to avoid drawing any pictures of, of God in any of his three persons at, at, at all. Yeah, great question. Good, good question. We're getting into second commandment stuff. All right. <laughs> Trinity stuff. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So earlier you were talking about how the scripture were translated into the vulgar language of the people. Mm-hmm. So would you have a problem? I mean, I'm wanting you to expound on your problem. <laughs> okay. Like translating like New King James, like King James into like, you know, New Living Translation or whatever. More modernized version of the Bible in order to appeal to youth generations or whatever. Oh. Okay, so yeah, so you're wanting to talk about okay, so that's that's a whole different animal. Um, <coughs> so, translation work is is hard, um, and depending on who you talk to, you'll get different answers. Um, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that one a- afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's got to it's got to be a, a a faithful translation from the original manuscripts, um, and uh, yeah, there there are a lot of good translations out there. Um, yeah, <laughs> translation work is very difficult. Um, so, I mean, when they did translate it into the vulgar tongue back in those times, did uh, was there any problem? So all translation work is going to have some form of interpretation to it. At some point, it's going to, to do that. Because there's, there's no way to get a... Um, and that's why I don't like using the term literal when you talk about translation. Because there is no true literal way to go. I, I think I would use the term more of like a wooden translation. Like this is the, the, the very wooden way to translate something from this language to this language. Because um, when you actually do it, when you get into the languages and you look at that you realize, oh, this is actually kind of hard and kind of tricky, right? Do I want to phrase it this way and make it sound more like this and use our English word like this? Or do I, because if I do that, it, it, it sways it to, to look like this more, but that's not the true meaning, even though that's the word. Or do I put the, 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 the real word and make it the meaning change? Or do I change the word to get to the actual meaning? You see what I'm saying? So... So you've got to be careful when you're translating. And then you've got to be consistent when you're translating script. Do, do I do that the entire time I'm translating the whole Bible, right? Or do I just do it in this instance? Or, so that's, why, that's how translation work can get really tricky. Um, but I do, I do like that stuff. It can kind of, pastor does too. You talk pastor. Pastor knows more about that stuff than I do. So um, he's not here now. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> don't. <laughs> Are we being recorded? No. <laughs> so when you're witnessing to Jewish people, it's a little bit, I'll say trickier, I guess. I, I did it once or twice, and it, <laughs> it didn't bear much fruit, I'll, I'll say that. I, I, you know, I went, I went to Isaiah, um, and... Um, and it, they, it's almost like they just don't see it or don't want to see it. Um, you know, I would add, I ask kind of pressing, like try to ask some more pressing questions about like, okay, well, how do you atone for sin? Because you don't do sacrifices anymore, right? Which according to your practice, that's how you atone for sin, right? And their answer was, well, we just... Um, we just kind of pray about that, or we do, because we don't do the literal sacrifices anymore. We just kind of what, what did you, your dad had an answer? I think at one point, right? Or uh, that, that was kind of the answer I was given was like we just pray, or um, the pre uh, the the rabbi just kind of uh, um, 
prays over the during the temple and we're we're forgiven. And I was like, okay, when did that happen? Because according to the Torah, that's not what you're supposed to do, right? And so the the guy I was talking to, he kind of fumbled over his words a little bit, and and he didn't really have an answer. Um, <clears throat> you know, so, so I was kind of trying to draw it out of him that like. Brother, you realize you're still in your sin, right? You haven't been forgiven of anything. So um, my goal was, (laughs) and I did this at a a Christmas party, so it probably wasn't the best time to do it. But, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, it is what it is. so the goal from there was to, was to bring him to the New Testament and say, you know, but, but in Christ we have forgiveness of sins, right? Important to different passages. Um, so I haven't had a lot of opportunities to, to witness to Jewish people, so that was kind of when I did it, that was kind of my intent and my goal. Um, I wish I had better answer for you, <laughs> but that's what I did. I don't know that it really worked, but... <laughs> <clears throat> What time is it? Okay. We'll have if anybody has one last question or thought. Ken? Yeah. Well, I I I don't know. Hope so. Because <laughs> I, I mean that kind of really is the biggest. Uh, at least uh, I thought the biggest problem was right. Um, of course, I was in seminary and I was arrogant and cocky and thought I knew everything. But um, if you ask my wife, nothing's changed. But. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, so, I don't know. <laughs> all right, good questions, good comments, good lecture today. Okay, all right, let me pray for us and have time for fellowship and get ready for worship. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for the preached word that we may hear it and be saved. We thank you that we can uh, be fed upon your word every Lord's Day that it is a a true nourishment and refreshment for our souls. We pray that you would be with us in our time of uh, fellowship um, and our time of worship, that it would be pleasing in your sight. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us as your people. We pray for Pastor Miller as he preaches your word today boldly and without shame as he preaches the whole counsel of God and feeds us through the power of your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.